This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. My name is George Crowder and I'm one of the, the staff here at Church Society. I'm the regional director for the north of England. This podcast is part of a series of perspectives on church leadership which we are broadcasting in the run-up to next year's Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference. Fellowship of Word and Spirit is a conference that has a strong foundation in Reformed theology and a generous spirit in listening and sharing ideas. And in this next conference, the subject is leadership. And we will be reflecting on some pertinent questions that arise from the Bible, from theology and from the world today. If you want to come, it's on Monday the 30th of January uh, to Wednesday the 1st of February and you can find more information and booking details on the Church Society website. Well, providing his perspective on church leadership in this podcast is Geoffrey Firth who I've known for many years as a fellow minister and as a friend. Geoffrey, welcome. It's good to be here George. Oh, first of all let's hear a little bit about you. Uh, tell us a bit about your background, where, where, where are you from and, and your early years and your education. Yeah, so I grew up in a place called Crosby, which is just north of Liverpool. Um, grew up going to the local church school and then the local state comprehensive. Uh, my parents uh, went to church every week and uh, I grew up going to church. And that was just a normal part of uh, everyday life. Is that is that a good start? Great. That's a good start. Right. Uh, so uh, you, you grew up in a Christian household. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was one of those things that was just a, a given. It was never ex- explicitly talked about uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, but I think my my mother especially was a very quiet witness. She just regularly just read the Bible and uh, and just sort of tried to live by it um, as best she could. So just it was just a part of life, really, going to church and. Um, and, and faith was just a part of life. I mean, I, I remember when I was six, um, <laughs> I remember very distinctly uh, being very surprised to discover that not everyone in my class at school went to church. Now, I knew they didn't go to my church, but it was just my assumption that they went to church somewhere. Um, and, and so it was somewhat of a surprise to discover they didn't. Um, I, I mean, that, it, it was just a normal part of my life. I was that an Anglican church? Are you a cradle Anglican? Yes. Uh, I, yeah, I grew up in the Church of England and that, that, that's my, my background. Um, yeah, very much so. Very much. And um, was there any particular moments in your own Christian formation where, where uh, well, like when you were six years old, you had a dawn of realisation about something and, and it meant a lot for your own understanding of the Christian faith? Yeah, well, I, I, I always say, um, <clears throat> and I certainly pray for my own God children, uh, to the effect of may they never know a day where they don't hear the name Jesus. Um, and I, you know, I, as much as I enjoy the, 
dramatic conversion stories. I think having just grown up in a Christian home and that's part of life is a, a genuine blessing. Um, so I, I can't think of a day where I wouldn't have said I was a Christian. Uh, but being a good Anglican, I went on a confirmation course at 14, which was 10 weeks in length. Uh, so it was not, not a small commitment and required a reading of the um, uh, of the Bible um, a chapter every night for that duration as well, which actually at 14 was quite a big deal. And uh, so I had great joy in reading that. And I, you got a sense where I'd started using um, Bible notes. It, they were a very atomized view of the text. So it was a verse with uh, a devotional thought attached to it, where the big advantage of just reading chapters is you've got a sense of the ebb and flow of the gospel far more. Um, so I, I was very grateful for that, and that was very striking. And that's probably the thing that most sticks out in my mind from that 10-week confirmation course. Uh, it, the only other additional thing in particular was the challenge, you need to believe this for yourself. Um, and I remember thinking, well, well I do. Um, you know, that's not a... Um, it was something I believe. So when I got confirmed, it was a, a happy, literal confirmation of what I had already worked out. I believed so at that point. Uh, yeah. And what about uh, you? Didn't then have a sudden calling into ministry. You you went and uh, had a had a different kind of career. What 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 uh, what did you go into? Well. Yes, yes and no. I mean, I, I had said I said I'd wanted a career in finance and uh, I, and I'd had a gap year um, uh, over in the United States. I lived with an Episcopal priest uh, and his family uh, for that year. And, um, you know, very formative and uh, they remain very special people to me. Um, not sure I could be in the Episcopal church, but that's that's a story for another day. Um but uh, I, when I came back, I went off to university to degree in finance. Um, the University of Humberside as was uh, over in Hull, um, uh, thinking, well, the Lord will use me where I am, but he'll reveal his plans in due course. And uh, a number of things sort of happened at the end of that first year at university. The uh, the 20 year old me over that summer uh, is increasingly thinking, I don't want to work a career in finance, which was a source of exasperation uh, to my father uh, at, at that particular point. I was enjoying the course, but I, I just couldn't see me doing a career in that. Uh, and then over that source of that summer, um, the late Melvin Tinker arrived at St John Newland Church in Hull uh, and, and started his ministry in the summer of 94. And, um, and uh, actually the influence of his preaching was probably the most decisive thing in me wanting to pursue ministry because I, I was excited in a way that I hadn't been since I was 14 uh, at the way the Bible was opened up and uh, was encouraged to follow along. And I went through a phase of thinking there ought to be more of this going on to slowly thinking, actually, maybe you ought to consider yourself uh, as someone who may be able to do this. Um, so uh, under the influence of Melvin's uh, teaching and uh, the then curate, uh, Chris Hobbs, who's currently in Birmingham, taking the time to read the Bible with me weekly. Um, sort of my sort of desire to go forward into ministry group. And I was given opportunities. Um, I worked part time in a voluntary capacity 
um, uh, for four years uh, after my degree as a parish assistant um, while I was teaching at the university, um, uh, some uh, part time as well. So I had a, a good exposure to different aspects of church life before I uh, I finally went off to a conference, a selection conference, the Church of England. First one was unsuccessful, uh, but uh, I got through the second one and uh, went off to, to ministry uh, training at Oak Hill, finally. Finally. Uh, but that was quite a long period, wasn't it? So, uh, there was a yeah. period where, where you always part-time lecturing and part-time in church, or how, how was your life at that point? Uh, it was crazy, to be honest. And um, it during term time, I was working up to 90 hours a week, which wasn't oh, sustainable. Uh, so Melvin's wife, uh, Heather Tinker, used to sort of pin me on a Sunday. Have you had a day off? And uh, persistently asked that question. I've decided there's very little thing as uh, part time jobs when you're trying to do ministry, trying to do lecturing. And I was trying to do some research as well uh, at, at that particular point. So you were, were you technically part time, or were you actually full time and just doing both things? I was technically part time, but but was doing both things of full time. I think so. <laughs> it, it it was it was particularly exhausting, and and actually that was one of the reasons. And, and I think in terms of our conversation today, it's relevant to reflect on uh, one of the reasons, which I think was probably right to say no to me at that point. Um, yeah. is um, they were concerned that. Uh, I was doing too much. I needed to learn to say no uh, a whole lot more. So, uh, um, and I think that was a valuable lesson um, in uh, um, that I probably did need to learn um, that uh, you, you know, the, the living the Christian life and Christian ministry are marathons, not sprints. And uh, while I could work at that rate for a period. Um, I couldn't do it for long term. So having worked four years as a parish assistant, uh, I, I finished um, the diocese. This was the Diocese of York back then. We're keen that I get exposure of a not a different church theologically, but a different church um, size wise. And sort of St. John's was quite a big with an active student ministry. Uh, so I went off to the west of Hull um, uh, to a a church called St Luke's Willoughby. Um, John Telford uh, is there currently, um, but uh, at the time with a, a man called Andrew Savage, and uh, he he kind of for, so I was basically a, a member of the congregation that helped out a little bit with the Sunday school and did the occasional preaching, which was uh, a great opportunity to sort of learn from a different size church and a different as church in a, a different completely different setting um so uh, that that's where i was uh, for three years so it was a total um seven years post university before i uh, went off to train mm. oh, wow. I, I hope I that makes sense to someone um <laughs> <laughs> no, i remember our college jeff because we were in the same year that yeah was, uh, we did a community survey project uh, in Hull, didn't we? And, uh, I, I, I wasn't that? on that. No, I wasn't oh, allowed right. to go on that one. No. Of course. Well, well, I did that, and I went to stay with Andrew Savage. So I, that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise that. So uh, okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it was it was an interesting area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Johnny Jukes was up the road. Yes, uh, uh, they were. They were. Um, it was one parish that became. 
uh, a team ministry uh, during my uh, the latter part of my time there. So they became two parishes. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, brilliant. So that that you're calling it to ministry there. It, it was over seven years, really discerning and and refining you, really ready for Oak Hill, where where we yeah. met. Yes. Oh, we met just before Oak Hill, didn't we? Because we were on the same camp ministry. Uh, Yes, we were doing Casterton, I think, that year, wasn't it? So, uh, yeah, um, we were both involved with that. Uh, I think that's oh. where we first met at the Leaders' Training Day. Ah, that was it, yeah, in, in, in New Ferry. I can't remember where it was, <laughs> it George. I mean, I've, I've slept, as the minute we often say, I've slept <laughs> since then, so, uh, yeah. Uh, OK, well, um, and then after Oak Hill, where, where did you uh, go then? Yes, so I, the Lord was very, very kind. Um, I, I don't mean it in the way this is coming across. I was released from the York Diocese. Um, <laughs> but, um, my my father died during my final year at Oak Hill. You'll remember that. And that was quite that a well. difficult yeah. time. Yeah. And um, being the age he was, he predeceased his parents. So I had power of attorney over them. Uh, so actually, the parish I went to was Poynton in Cheshire. Rob McLaren was the uh, incumbent at that point. Um, and uh, it was fortuitously in the Lord's goodness, um, exactly halfway or within a mile of exactly halfway between my grandparents over in Leeds and my mother uh, over in Liverpool. And um, so it, it, it provided... Uh, I, I do think it was very much the Lord's goodness that he put me in a place that fitted personally, but was a such an exciting, um, exciting time to be going to a parish that was moving forward in a new phase of ministry. Rob McLaren had only been there 18 months prior to my arrival as curate. Um, and, and so it was an early stage of what is quite a civic church with quite a number of civic responsibilities to sort of be involved and to sort of see new initiatives and uh, be involved in the leadership uh, of that church at that point. It was, um, it, it was, uh, it, it was a terrific experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you had Alec Matea hanging around us at George's point. Yes, we did. I mean, I mean, you know, kind of, uh, we were a little bit cowards on that. Uh, he'd retired. His daughter lived in the area and he and his wife, Beryl, Alec and, and Beryl Matea had retired to Poynton and uh, to, to be near family. And uh, uh, we, we were a bit cowardly in terms of we, we weren't that fond of preaching on Isaiah uh, that, that often <laughs> uh, with Alec there. But I made the mistake in my first year of suggesting that we might preach uh, Exodus. There was reason for suggesting Exodus would be a good series to do. Uh, so we're in the leaders and preachers meeting talking about this forthcoming sermon series on Exodus only for Alec Matea to bring in a pre-publication copy of the BST on Exodus that he had just written. So uh, that that was, uh, he was he was nothing but a lovely and gracious and godly man. And at various points, uh, I, I went round to, to, to talk to Alec to, I was encouraged by the vicar to, to go and talk to Alec, just um, his godly wisdom of a lifetime of ministry and uh, was dividends and just sitting with him and sort of saying slightly screaming at various things that were going on at the church uh, and, and his wisdom of just sort of calming me down and saying just be patient dear boy uh, in that lovely <laughs> accent of his um, was, was it was hugely valuable and uh, I, I do very much thank God for having the opportunity of spending some time with Alec as well those final years of his life. 
Brilliant. Uh, tell us about your your current ministry, uh, which you after your currency you went in you, you went into. Yeah. Well. I'll wind back a little bit. So uh, while I was uh, at Oak Hill, as you're aware, we had to do a non-parochial uh, placement, chaplaincy placement of some sort. And uh, I, I'm, um, I can be a little bit cynical about chaplaincy, uh, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I, I spent some time thinking, um, where would chaplaincy be most effective and I thought chaplaincy would be most effective in the environments where, um, well, in communities that are largely closed to parochial clergy. Um, so uh, uh, schools to a very large extent, prisons very definitely, and the military were the ones that came to mind. So uh, picking up a contact to someone else who'd gone off to do a placement at uh, the army, uh, I went and did a placement at the army training regiment in Purbright for a week. Um, uh, with two chaplains there who were very gracious with me as uh, uh, and a very, very different perspective. But I was utterly astonished at the opportunities for ministry that came from uh, being in the military environment. I was really quite surprised on that. I slightly parked that experience. I, I, I'm, I'm not the slimmest or fittest of uh, men. And uh, I kind of thought, well, that, that's very interesting and uh, just parked that to, to one side. Um, however, uh, in the course of my curacy, um, uh, very in a very wily way, the, the RAF and the Navy actually had sent to everyone at the, the end of the second year of curacy, big glossy brochures saying, have you considered chaplaincy? Um, and so I'd received that. And then in the course of my involvement, I was involved with as a trustee in uh, CPAS at, at this point, with particularly to do with ventures. In the course of my travelling round over a venture, I happened to bump into uh, a, an RAF chaplain and said, I'd, I'd love to come and see what you do. He was based at uh, RAF Valley in North Wales. And uh, so I, I went off a sort of, I think, was it 48 hours or something to go and see him. And um, it had become then, at that point, quite an official visit. I hadn't quite realised that, I don't think, at that point. And it was followed up by a phone call by someone who's now one of my colleagues uh, about, have you thought of applying? Uh, and he then spent 45 minutes persuading me uh, to apply um, uh, to the RAF. <laughs> and it was one of those things, well... Um, this is a good point of my ministry to try something different uh, while I'm younger. Um, uh, and um, maybe this is where the Lord is leading. But let's just apply and see what happens. And if the door closes, that's fine. Um, uh, but and to my surprise, the door kept opening and uh, they, 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 they let me through and let me in. Uh, and then in... Um, uh, October 2010, uh, I went off to RAF Cromwell. Um, the harshness of that, George, I was four seconds too slow on a run. And so they gave me 10 extra weeks of training for that. And uh, uh, at that point, I probably needed it for more than just fitness. I kind of, me, uh, you know, I've got two left feet, really. So the idea of marching and doing all this other stuff is uh, just hilarious, really. So had to get through all of that. There was a point, it was a very bad winter in Lincolnshire that year where we were doing press-ups outside and the snow was so deep that every time I went down, 
my nose went into the snow. And it was that sense of uh, that there was a strong sense at that point of um, the power in this relationship has shifted, hasn't it? And I, I had to tell myself as I was getting very cold why it was that I was doing this. And it, it's the opportunities for ministry, I think, uh, that, that uh, you know, follow from that. Uh, being living in that environment uh, gives opportunity. Well, tell us a little bit about living in that environment and tell us about ministry in that environment. Yes, it, it's um, it's many and varied. I think in some ways there's uh, a whole number of things that are common with parish uh, ministry. Uh, there is a less of an emphasis, I think, on Sunday ministry, on church services, although we have had churches at a number of the station stations have been at. Um, I think if people increasingly people are encouraged to settle and move into an area uh, and, and keen Christian people, um, and I get it and I get why, are keen to get settled into a local church rather than necessarily a military church. Um, that's not saying they don't join in some midweek things, but uh, quite often local churches are better equipped at, say, the family ministry uh, more than the military church could be. Um, so that there's less of an emphasis on that, although there's been great joy in, in leading that. There's a very strong sense of um, uh, um, pastoral ministry, caring for people and how you live being a witness. And you do get some extraordinary opportunities. Um, and what what remains nice is you remain um, at the, 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 course there are those who uh, would wish it otherwise um, but you remain a, a, a critical integral part of the institution um, the chaplains you know we, we put a lot of effort in training institutions people are told how to relate to a chaplain so I get called padre and uh, very very frequently which has the advantage of being a nice halfway house of not being too familiar, uh, but at the same time not being too formal, um, which is important in a sort of a hierarchical organisation. Um, and uh, people know they can talk to you in confidence. Um, yeah, I think there is... Uh, the only things I'm required to report on uh, if someone came to talk to me was safeguarding concerns, uh, obviously, uh, but also acts, preparatory acts to terrorism. So uh, if someone told me they were going to blow something up, uh, I think I'm uh, I'm supposed to do something with that and a piece of information. But uh, essentially, they can talk to you in, in confidence and they come with all sorts of things. Um, but it is living the life alongside them. So. Ten years ago, one of the most significant things I did was go out to Camp Bastion in Afghanistan. And I was there for nearly four months as a chaplain there. Um, that that was quite a trying and difficult time. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, we during my time there, 13 people um, came back in coffins. And, uh, you know, there's ministering to units that have lost uh, on the uh, ground there. Um uh, there's a whole number of chaplains out in the field, but ministering to that, being involved with that. And people have questions about life and death and being willing to engage with that. And uh, some of the things they witness and see help them to try and unpick some of those things. And in many ways, that's the job uh, here. Uh, I, I, I always think a, a strong theological sense, a core, is, is quite important. Um, I think a strong sense of 
biblical anthropology is important understanding people. So never being surprised at the depths of sin to which people can fall, but never doubt the ability for redemption uh, from that. Um, I mean, there are a number of times I'm thinking, yeah, at what point did any of this sound like a good idea to you as uh, people come and share and offload uh, the whole variety of things that they're feeling and experiencing and some of the daft things that they get up to. Um, and it's just trying to help them make sense of that. Um, uh, you know, there have been the dramatic times when uh, pilots who fast jet pilots who've had to drop uh, ammunition, uh, have to drop bombs on particular things are struggling with some of that. Um, and just trying to help people make sense of what they do and the life that they live, as well as all the attendant things along the way. And into that, trying to speak some life and hope, trying to communicate something of the good news of Jesus Christ, trying to provide opportunities for people to learn about him, uh, to uh, grow in faith in him try and work out what that means in the weird world of the military. Um, and it can be a very weird world. Uh, we're at the very least, we're all very transitory. We all move around uh, very frequently in a lot of ways. Um, and and it, it's an, an often misunderstood world. And uh, so what it is to be a Christian in this is quite a challenge. I don't know if that gives a sufficient flavour. Oh, it's an incredible uh, perspective, Jeffrey. I think one of the things that struck me is that people just come to you. Yes. They they do. You're in a community there. You're known, and people will come to you when yeah. they want to talk. Uh, uh, that is a, an incredible opportunity. Yes, I I often say I get paid to give people time, um, and, and I think that is an enormous privilege actually uh you know i get to wander around i get to talk to people i get to see them you've got to be able to read the room and you know know if they're all busy in the middle of something now's not the best time uh but people are grateful to see you and uh you're a welcome presence um you, you know as i sometimes say people as one of my colleagues says the um people they're always glad to see you but they're always glad to see you leave um but you are a welcome presence within the community and they do just come up to you and talk to you and and it happens in the strangest of places and the strangest of times uh you know quite often particularly with the officer cadre it, it, it's in the bar in an evening and they're just informally chatting and uh you know what do you think of this type of padre and you know you sort of off on a conversation you weren't necessarily expecting and um you know all of that's a, a great uh a great privilege to just be there with people yeah and and i know this and many people might know this but you assume the rank of the person that you're talking to so anyone can talk well, to, to the well that's more of a, a naval tradition actually than a, a, an air force tradition oh, okay so uh we we play down rank which is why we emphasize the title padre so uh, uh so i don't think especially the rank uh is a particular problem but i i do wear a rank uh where the naval chaplains don't um so uh yeah i from my point of view that just gives me a position within the organization which people can recognize um but it doesn't tend to be a barrier um we we it doesn't tend to be a barrier as, as certainly is not from what i can tell yeah, I mean that brings us on to the subject of leadership, which is what we're uh, here to yes. talk about. Uh, you've, you, you, in your life, you've experienced uh, uh, different worlds, uh, various different worlds, mm. and uh, uh, especially in the military, encountered a different world where you've uh, encountered a particular leadership 
style and model. Uh, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the different models of leadership you've encountered and, and, and your perspective on them uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the education sector, in, in church, and, in, uh, and particularly in the military, and, and mm. how, how you found that. I think, um, I, I, in slightly reflecting on this, uh, the um, so a little bit of the research I was doing was sort of looking at organisational theory uh, when I was back at the academic uh, world a bit more. Um, and, and there are, there's a whole series, you, you can look them up quite easily, there's a whole series of uh, metaphors to describe organisations, you know, living organism as a machine um, and, and, and all sorts of things. And you get an awful lot of wiring diagrams from that. I think the interesting thing about being in the university was um, it, at that point, in a sense, was going through a bit of a collective breakdown, uh, the particular institution I was in. Um, so in the um, seven years that I worked within the university on a part-time basis, we went through four reorganisations. Uh, and I think I had five bosses uh, in that point, which is phenomenal amount of change um, and is just not stable. Um, and the lack of stability, I think, was one of the, 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 the key features of the leadership. If the organisation is always in flux, if the organisation is uncertain, then it's very difficult to offer leadership. I mean, no one is going to want to start a three-year research project if you're not confident that uh, you're going to be have the backing of the leadership uh, in three years' time because the leadership have changed twice uh, along the way. Uh, and so it's quite deep. Um, it was debilitating, really, going through an institution that was just in constant change and constant flux. And I'm pleased to say it's got better, but it's got better since I've left. Um, and but it was a very difficult period uh, in the uh, in in the the, the organisational history. And the, what happens is people begin to put their heads down and just try to do what they need to do without reference to the whole. Um, so you begin to get sort of people pulling in different directions. You get a diffused power structure um, and a diffused power structure is generally fine. But people making decisions without reference to anyone else uh, becomes problematic. Um, my favourite sort of sort of story from that point, I was asked for the results of some stu uh, the exam results of some students um, the day before the students took the exam. Um, because everyone had worked backwards on their sort of deadlines. Uh, and, and so the person who wasn't considered was the person who set the exam and needed to mark it. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a certain amount of dysfunction that comes in when you have poor leadership and organizational change. So I think, I think those two things, I think, are what I learned at that point is, um, organizational structure has an awful lot effect on the lead the ability to exercise leadership and the function of leadership um so that that's that's a little bit what i, I learned there um uh, uh, and uh so, so that that was interesting um you want me to keep going george is that please keep going yeah right <laughs> the uh so so moving forward um just let me make sure this is working still yeah, uh, moving um, uh, moving forward through Oak Hill, um, uh, I, 
I don't think I particularly reflecting on leadership there, but moving into church leadership. Um, church leadership, I think, is different. Um, just at a is different to um, leadership in other organisations, primarily because you are working with volunteers. Um, I, I'll come to the theological points in a moment, but um, one thing you can't do uh, in church leadership is so just issue orders uh, and expect people to follow them. You have got to carry people with you a whole lot more uh, in order to achieve the outcome. Um, and I think that's probably fits with that sort of sense of servant leadership, which Jesus, of course, himself so wonderfully modelled. Um, he at some points pushed his disciples, um, but he carried them with him. Um, and although there are times in the Gospels where Jesus seems quite exasperated with their, quote, slowness of heart uh, at, at various points, uh, he was patient with them and led them and uh, carried them with him. Uh, so when he sends them out, they're not going out without having seen and learnt from him. Um, and they're willing participants in that in that mission uh, of Jesus sending them out. And when they come back and are rejoicing at demons submitting and all the other things that they managed to achieve, uh, Jesus um, reminds them of what actually really counts and is important. So his patience with them, uh, the way he um, brings those who will be the leaders in the church with him and in integrates them into the mission, um, I think is, is very telling uh, to see. And I think we ought, as church leaders, I think any any time we get overbearing, that should be a concern. And of course, the whole characteristics of the pastoral epistles is about leading in a family. And that's not about being overbearing and being a burden. That is about serving and being an enabler uh, to the uh, people of God uh, at that point, which I, I think there's a whole number of things there. Servant leadership, I think, is a very important important function um i don't know whether you want to ask me anything at that point or how we're going to edit no, I mean, I, no it's fine um I, I think that's it's really important that you kind of make that point and that's that's where you were at uh, in your curacy i was interested to hear that you said you went through a kill and well there was nothing to report there uh, did the college in any way prepare you for, for, for the church leadership uh, or could it have prepared you in any way better? Um, I think there were, there were um, oh, gosh, it's easier to answer in retrospect um, than it is. I mean, yeah. both experience, but some of the things that, uh, that follow. Um, Oak Hill was excellent, I think, at raising the questions about leadership. Um, you know, these are the things we want to, to think about. These are the things we ought to address. Um, and, and leadership within the church and leadership in mission, I think, was was excellent at raising the questions. Uh, I got very excited and animated in a number of the classes that we had, uh, particularly uh, looking at those kind of issues. I think um, where I, 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 I and I think some of the approach that was taken is because um, in so much of the Church of England, and we can talk about this in whatever way, there is a there's a vacuum of leadership 
Um, mm. One of the great joys of my current ministry that I get to see is local clergy in a lo- whole load of local <coughs> local contexts. Um, now, one of the things about local clergy in local context is um, a lot of them seem well weary would be the word and a lot of local clergy are browbeaten i think a lot of local clergy are bullied by members of the, you know particularly dominant personalities within the local church um you know i i had to face down in the curacy with the incumbents backing but i had to face down some bullying uh, of some of my sunday school leaders at the time uh there but there's a, there's a lot of clergy who are just bullied and pushed about I think in a whole number of ways um, so I, I think um, I think the emphasis of Oak Hill was one of preparing to be a leader and seeing leadership as a gift to the church and I think increasingly I, that that is something I'd want to emphasize leadership is a gift to the church um, that doesn't mean we blindly follow what the rest of the world does um, but it is a gift to the church and failure to exercise leadership is an abdication of responsibility uh, in many ways and I think I'd want to be as strong as that if not stronger in, in saying that a failure of leadership is an abdication of responsibility um, uh, so I think I think there were some really good things about the stuff that we did at college and I'm very thankful for everything we did the problem was when you arrive as a as an Anglican, you go off to be a curate. And so, uh, yes, you're in the leadership, but you're not in overall leadership at, at that particular point. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is as much as we lead, we're also followers. Um, and I think in... I think I've come to learn and appreciate that the more I've gone on. So the military, you know, there's uh, talks about followership. Uh, there's actually books written with that title uh, in it, you know, about followership, uh, being a good follower, being a good subordinate, being a good number two. Um, because all of us in some places, place or other, are called to be a follower, not just a leader. Um uh, it, to be hardly controversial, some of the contra- controversies and discussions that I, I, I read going on um, amongst uh, certainly uh, evangelical clergy is everyone is got a voice and opinion and not easily, not very good at listening. And I think listening is one of the key functions of fellowship is sort of trying to understand who, you know, who you're following and what it is that they're trying to achieve. Um so I think I think there is a big thing there about being a follower. And I think my reflections on my early experience within curacy is I, I, I probably could have been a better follower um, at, at that stage. And uh, thinking a little bit about that would have been helpful. Thank you, Jeffrey. So, so far, we to summarise, patience and servant-hearted leadership uh, is something that you inspired by by Jesus about and uh, your military experience has given you this perspective on every leader as a follower which uh, from your biblical theological perspective makes perfect sense yes. and from from your uh, understanding of ha- uh, current controversies um, is is an issue that we need to uh, consider and reflect on that yes. to be that every leader is a, is a follower I mean a, a fan for a 
a church minister, we, we are followers of Christ. But yes. In the, but but we are also have to submit to authority, and we don't do it easily. Um, uh, that, that's very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why. Um, um, one of the reasons I'm. It's one of the reasons I like episcopacy. I, I'm not saying that the way the Church of England exercises episcopacy is right at the moment. It seems to me we've got far more managerialism than we do leadership uh, in, in many ways. Um, but uh, the the idea that there is someone else that we owe some degree of obedience to. Now, in the absence of it being formally established in in the Church of England context, I think there are informal leaders who emerge, um, but 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 actually to learn and to listen and to follow, uh, I think is a, is is a, a challenge for us. That's a surface level comment on a very deep discussion that we could we could pursue. Yeah, that that just touched on something interesting: the emergence of informal leadership. Um, uh, can be a good thing because we need support and encouragement and direction but it also can be a difficult thing because uh, lack of formal governance um, ca- it means that it's unchecked yes um, um, have you any thoughts on that yes i mean one of the things that uh, i did when i was at uh, the the RAF college uh, Cramwell uh, was they they get you to do these various exercises you know these kind of get from this bank to that bank you're not allowed to touch the floor you've got all this piece of apparatus to get yourselves across and they get you to do it without leadership um, which invariably is a fiasco the task isn't achieved no one gets to where they're supposed to and it's just and then it's just a disaster they then put leaders in um, and invariably the task is then achieved. Someone who takes a step back and is able to look at things is quite, uh, quite a valuable, uh, quite a valuable commodity and is able to offer direction. And, you know, leadership is important. So there's no doubt about that. I think, um, in the absence of formal, um, leadership, uh, formal leadership that we have confidence in and historically this is where it gets fascinating historically the church of england has had a very careful balance here between the responsibilities of the bishop and the responsibilities of local clergy so uh, the whole thing about freeholds was one that an overbearing bishop couldn't just um in some vindictive way get rid of the clergy um but actually the bishop had the responsibility for uh, doctrinal uh, purity and um, making sh- disciplining clergy for moral failure. Uh, it seems to me that those things are, are what we don't exercise now um, and, 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 and aren't there. Uh, so we, 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 we're left position where bishops have become managers, which management isn't leadership. Um, and at such there are others who are trying to uh, stepping up into that breach, which is a wonderful thing because we need leadership. Um, we cannot, uh, we, we, you know, the local church can't grow. Um, the mission to a community, wider communities won't grow. A sort of sense of where we're headed as a, as a, as, as a group of churches 
um, is is incoherent. We won't get anywhere without leadership. You need leadership. The problem with the informality of it is no one. There is no process that has gone through to appoint the leaders that everyone has universal confidence in. Um, so it's it, it often can seem um, that leaders are self-appointed, um, which I I don't necessarily think is always true, but it can feel like that because there has been no verifiable process that we have gone through whereby we uh, can say this person is going to be a leader. And, and then what begins to happen is the qualifications for leadership begin to uh, change as well. And I think one of the issues I reflect on is it becomes the people we want to appoint as leaders be, are the people who are like us. Um, but we remain sinful, flawed human beings. And it's often then who I know, who I like. Of course, we don't know people well enough. I think this is one of the lessons we've learned in recent issues that have happened in church life. We don't know what is going on. Um, the, the, the process of verifying that person as a leader isn't always obvious. Um, and it can give rise to scandal um, at, at that particular point because it becomes unchecked at that point. There's, there's no, no formal verification of leadership. Um, means that you become on very uncertain grounds as to on what basis a leader is appointed, um, and, and uh, therefore you're you're subject to the uh, the very least the whims of that individual. Um, a, quite often a rejection of that authority, um, and potentially uh, opening yourself up to some make, placing people on a pedestal that they can never live up to. Um, uh, I, I might just leave it like that uh, at that point. Yeah, um, that, 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 that's really helpful, Geoffrey. Thank you. I mean, our time is uh, is running out. Um, I guess one last question I, I, I'd love to ask you, and that could really be helpful for anyone listening, is uh, what would you? How should we pray for leadership in this situation that we're in, where we have informal leaders, and we all those things you just said are all true, um, and we have bishops who aren't exercising leadership in, mm. in the way that we'd hoped them to do it. Uh, a few prayer, things to pray for from your perspective. Oh, gosh, what yes. would you... That's an excellent point to be sort of taking us towards uh, at this point in the discussion. Pray for the bishops. Uh, I think one of the things I've learned in leadership and just observing is we're very quick to comment and condemn. Um, I suspect people in leadership, I mean, I, I, I have the privilege of being able to go to senior people and close the doors with them within the military and say, tell me what's going on in your life at this moment in time and, you know, be a confidant and a friend to them. And I, you get to hear some of the pressures that people under. One of the things I learn is we face pressures, they face pressures that we don't even begin to comprehend. Um, there are things that they're dealing with that we don't have to deal with and we ought to be thankful for that. Um, so do pray for the bishops with the various responsibilities that they have. Uh, pray that they would, uh, I think, uh, remember that they are pastors first and foremost, uh, and that they would therefore serve those who are seeking to make the Lord known. Um, draw alongside them as well. I think quite often leadership, one of the things I hear very frequently from military leaders is it, how lonely it is 
in leadership. It can be very lonely. It's not obvious who you can talk to. It's not obvious who you can trust. Um, uh, some of the decisions you can't always report. So do pray for them in, in their exercise of that. Pray for those who, uh, for good reason, are trying to lead us in the vacuum uh, of leadership that we feel we might need and we ought to have. Uh, pray for them that they would remain godly. Pray for them that they would do well. Be prepared, I think, and pray for yourselves to be followers. Pray for them to be followers. At, um, because I think remembering you're a follower induces humility um, at, at that particular point. Uh, and and um, yeah, I think pray for ourselves that we would exercise leadership but that we would be patient and um, uh, understanding of others who are in leadership as well. Um, their positions mightn't be yours, um, but leadership brings all sorts of attendant pressures. So pray that you would be a follower, pray that as they would be a follower. Um, and uh, yeah, pray that we get the leadership we deserve. Pray that the Lord would have mercy on us in that. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. Really, really interesting, really helpful and very beneficial. Thank you for your time, Jeffrey Firth. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.